Okay. He gave you a little bit more than 94 seconds there. It is good to fellowship. It is good to know the sweetness of that. We come today on Reformation Sunday, and Reformation Sunday, to a large extent, hinges on the passage from Habakkuk uh, and how we understand that and how it was understood historically and how it comes to us today and how we are then to live it out. So if you will take your Bibles and turn with me to Habakkuk chapter 2. Let me ask you to put your finger there, and with another finger, you have to turn over to Romans chapter 1. Okay, and if you will stand with me if you're able, and uh, as we read the Word of God. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you today. And we come to your word. We ask that our hearts and our minds and our eyes and all that we are would be open to this. And, and we would live in this. To live in this wonderful and gracious truth that you have declared to us. Lord, fix this in our hearts. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So first, Habakkuk chapter 2. Read verses 2 through 5. Really, we will be dealing with a portion of verse 4, but see in the context. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Now we turn to Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. This is where Paul is quoting from Habakkuk. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. Now just out of this you'll notice, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, it is the power of God for salvation. The way that God has worked in our lives is important to be able to share how you became a believer. It is important to be able to share about Scripture. It is, I think, most important to be able to share what Scripture says and go to specific passages. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, Paul is just not mentioning two types of people there. There was the Jewish world and the Greek world in the first century, according to Jewish understanding. That encompassed everybody, okay? So the gospel is for everybody. Now, we might think that someone that we know is beyond salvation. 
You know, they're certainly not going to heaven. You can tell. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow in their life. You don't know what's going to happen in 20 years in their lives. You never know what the Lord will do. And sometimes he, he took only six years to prepare you for belief. Some of you came to faith in Sunday school. Six years old, you heard the story of the missionary, and they shared the gospel, and you went, I, I have to believe that. That's right. Maybe it takes to your 60 or 90. And the Lord is taking that and preparing you. We call that technically prevenient grace, the grace that goes before, that he is working in your lives. And, and we can probably all look back, for those of us who are believers, look back at, at, and see, oh, yeah, you know, that conversation there and that conversation there and that event, and I see how the Lord was drawing me unto himself to that moment where he would open my eyes and I would be able to believe and confess Christ as Lord and Savior. So for those of you who are here who don't have a long history of Presbyterianism uh, or maybe have no real knowledge of, of church history uh, and what we call the Reformed faith, we call it Reformed faith, we really think it is biblical faith, I'm going to give you a crash course in history, okay? And when I say crash, I mean crash. Uh, because if, if you want to know more, I've got 8,000 pages in my office that you can read about these events. And, and they will go into such excruciating minutia and names that you will never remember. Um, but it's in there. So you can do that or you can listen to the crash course, Okay. The start of the Reformation is dated to 1517, and we shall see more about that in a moment. Now, Presbyterians, um, remember we're Presbyterians by the form of government. We are reformed by our faith. We stem from the Calvinistic strain of the Reformation. There's also the Zwinglian strain. Zwingli was a Swiss reformer. From that strain, we get Methodism, some Baptists, Pietists, uh, even... Um, um, uh, Mennonites and, and, and people like that from the Zwinglian strain. And then, of course, there is the Lutheran strain from which we get the Lutherans. Okay? Now, we're focusing on Luther this morning. And although he was not the first to put forth a need for a reformation within the Roman church, he was, the, in a sense, the straw that broke the camel's back. Uh, things had been percolating within the church in the 14th, 15th, and then into the 16th century about how the, the Roman church just, just was not understanding Scripture. Luther's actions, as I said, was, were enough to, to make uh, everybody stand up and notice, and there was no going back after Luther made his statement, and uh, no longer could we have just an exclusively Roman view of Christianity and the Word of God. So Martin Luther, uh, technically, for those of you who know German, it's Luther, okay, with not a th, but a two Ts, Luther. Uh, Luther, well, I'm going to say it like I did. Luther was born in 1483, successful home, and in accordance with the wishes of his father, he went to study law, um, which only lasted six weeks, okay? So uh, on July 17th in 1505, Luther abandoned his studies and went to the Augustinian monastery at a place called Erfurt. Now, why such a change? Uh, now, just as an aside, I have a friend in ministry, he's, he's older than I am, and he was at um, Princeton, uh, Princeton Law School. He was about to take his finals in his final year, okay? Now, for those of you who are lawyers, you're like, yeah, 
going to finish this, going to go on. And right before he took his finals of the final year, he had a dream. He was convinced the Lord came to him and said, leave law school and go to seminary. And, of course, he said to himself, well, that makes no sense. Okay, why would I want to do that? I'm almost done. But he was, it, it was just upon his heart. He was so convinced. He went to the dean, and he dropped out before he took his finals and enrolled in Princeton Seminary. And someone asked him later in life, said, Stu, why did you do that? I mean, all you had to do was take it, and you could always fall back on it. He said, have you ever had Hebrew? I said, yeah. He said, well, if, if in the middle of Hebrew, if I just thought it was too hard, then I could have gone and practiced law. But by then, I had burned, in a sense, like Cortez, I burned the ships. There's no going back, okay? There's only what lies before us. So he went, obviously still in ministry, great guy. So that's what uh, Luther did. He left law school because one time during a thunderstorm, as he was walking from one place to another, the thunderstorm was so intense that he cried out to St. Anne, St. Anne, save me, and I will become a monk. Well, he survived. Mm. And he made a vow. Now, this vow was made under duress, so no one would have been too upset if he did not carry through on the vow. But because he did, there must have been something else percolating in his heart. So in 1507, he began to study theology at the University of Erfurt and then switched over to the Augustinian University at Wittenberg, where he received his doctorate. He became a professor there at Wittenberg of of biblical studies. And it was during this time in 1510 when he was sent to Rome on church business. Okay, he was pretty well respected by this time, and and off he went. Now, Rome had a special place in every monk's heart. So when Martin Luther arrived in Rome, it said he raised his... First, he fell to the earth, he kissed the ground, he raised his hands and said... Hail to thee, holy Rome, thrice holy for the blood of the martyrs shed here. So he went there and he wanted a spiritual experience. So naturally he visited the graves of 46 popes and the cemeteries of 80,000 martyrs' bones. Okay? That's what they did. And when good monks visited Rome in the 16th century, they also would visit a place called Scala Sancta, holy steps, the holy steps. Now, according to tradition, these steps were the very steps that led up to the praetorium of Pontius Pilate in Jerusalem, where Jesus stood during his passion on the way to his trial. <clears throat> the stairs were said to have been brought to Rome in the 4th century by St. Helena. Uh, and they consisted of 28 white marble steps. Then they were encased in wood to, to protect them now. The Catholic Church taught that if you ascended the stairs on your knees, marble stairs, okay? Now, for those of us with bad knees, that's a painful experience, okay? But you had to go up on your knees, and at every step, you had to say the Our Father, okay? The Patronotra, that's in Roman theology. And if you did all 28 like that, saying to our Father on every step, when you got to the top, it was said you could release a soul from purgatory. Okay? And Martin Luther had a grandfather. He was convinced who was in purgatory, and he wanted to turn him loose. So that's what he did. So he started on the scale of sancta. And as he is ascending the steps, 
he, he in a sense, heard this voice in his heart. Now, he, he goes on to explain a little bit more in just a second. The just shall live by faith, Habakkuk and Paul. Remember, Luther is a professor of biblical studies focusing particularly on the works of Paul. And it was said that when he heard that, he stood up. Now, you have to understand, all those other monks and people who are on their knees, one, one step at a time, and, and Luther was pretty far up the steps. They looked at him, and you can just imagine, are you crazy? You can't stop now. You're almost there. Think of that soul who needs out of purgatory. And Luther turned, and he said, the just shall live by faith. And he walked down the steps, and off he went. You know, how could he ruin that? So close to actually getting something, but no good. Later, Luther wrote about the experience. He says, although I was a holy and irreproachable monk, my conscience was full of trouble and anguish. I could not bear the words, justice of God. I loved not the just and holy God who punishes sinners. I was filled with secret rage against him. I hated him because not satisfied with terrifying his miserable creatures, already lost by original sin, with his law and his miseries and the miseries of life, he still further increased our torment by the gospel. I mean, that's kind of a strange understanding of the life-giving gospel. But when, by the Spirit of God, I comprehended these words, the just shall live by faith, the sinner's justification proceeds from the pure mercy of the Lord by means of faith, then I felt myself revived like a new man and entered at open doors into the very paradise of God. That's the change the gospel brings. One of a God who, who hates me, a God who just wants to crush me because of my sin, to a God who freely gives saving grace. This started Luther on a journey that would lead him to a door at his seminary in Wittenberg. So in the fall of 1517... Luther was pretty upset with a guy named Tetzel. Tetzel was preaching um, that you could give money to the Roman church um, and selling what are called indulgences. And because if you would do that, then you could send somebody out of purgatory. Tetzel's famous um, um, uh, line, when a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. And that's how he would sell indulgences, Okay. Well, Luther, this was making Luther crazy. Uh, so he drafted a set of propositions for the purpose of conducting an academic debate because that's what you did. And he put those on the door at Wittenberg and there were 95 of them. 95 points that he wanted to debate in an academic sense and we call them the 95 Thesis. So Luther said that justification is the doctrine upon which the church stands or falls. Stands or falls. And this flows from our passage in Habakkuk. It flows through Paul and to us. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, There are no two verses more important in Scripture than Romans 1, 16, and 17. They are the rock-bottom foundation of Protestantism because they talk about justification. So as Luther wrestled with these verses, he asked, what does it mean that there's this righteousness by faith and that the righteous shall live by faith? What does it mean? So eventually the lights came on 
in Luther's mind. The Holy Spirit had opened his eyes, and he began to understand that what Paul was speaking of here was a righteousness that God, in his grace, is giving to those who believe, not those who attempt to earn it. Because Luther had spent his time as a monk sleeping on the stone floor with no blanket, whacking himself, confessing his sin. In fact, there, there was a point where his confessor said, Martin, don't come to me anymore. These aren't real sins. Okay, you're just making them up. You're just trying to find sin in your life. Okay, I've had enough of this. And it was that guy who said, go read Romans. Well, that was a great thing to do. Okay, <laughs> so, so the lights come on and, and it is by grace, not can't be earned. It is by God's grace. And it is given to those who receive it by faith. And this is the means by which a person could be reconciled or put in a right relationship with God. It's our sin that keeps us away from God. It's his grace that reconciles us to him. And he gives us the means by which we are reconciled. The Greek word for justified in the New Testament means to be declared righteous. Okay, I am still sinful, but God declares me righteousness. He declares me as righteous. This was a revelation to Luther. He said, Paul is talking about the righteousness that God gives to us, and he gives it freely. That's the gospel. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This righteousness that belongs to Christ that is given to us. I can't make myself righteous. I can't make myself good enough to get to God. I go to Sunday school. I sing in the choir. You know, I go work at the homeless shelter. That doesn't get you to God. Okay? The grace of Jesus Christ given to us, that makes us right with God. So, so many words have been written about this. Like I said, I got thousands of pages about this in my office. I thought I'd look at four words, okay? We ought to be able to handle four words, right? Just, imputation, that'll take a little explaining, live, and faith. Four simple words for us today. So, number one, our justification, that is our salvation, is not based upon or relied upon any good work that we have done. It's not. This is because any good works that are done without faith are not really good works, according to the Lord. Okay? Only those things, Ephesians 2, which he has prepared beforehand for us to do, that are done in Christ. Those are good works. They don't get us to heaven, but they shine God's glory through our lives. Okay? Any attempt to get to God is all about, on our own, is self-righteousness. We can't make ourselves right with God. Jesus has paid the penalty for our sin. Okay, that's the Sunday school. You know that. That is clear. But justification is a legal term. And it means we are declared righteous because of what Jesus has done. We receive this justification. How do we receive it? By believing. It's called faith alone. Because there is nothing we could possibly do to add to the work that Christ has already done. Okay? Finished on the cross. To tell us die, it is finished. This does not mean, unfortunately, I would love it if this was true, but it does not mean that at the moment of justification, the moment of salvation, that sin no longer is a problem for me. Wouldn't that be great? 
I could walk in perfect obedience. I would never have a stray thought. My eyes would never wander to something they should not see. My hands would never do something they should not do. And it would just be wonderful. Well, that's going to happen, but I have to be dead first. Okay? So while I'm still here, sin remains in my heart, but it does not what? does not reign in my life. The Holy Spirit now reigns in my life. But I still struggle, okay? It's Randy's will and God's will. And they're button heads on a regular basis, okay? And we all face this. And the more we grow in Christ, the more we understand his will and, and my will lessens, and I take on more of what he wants. It would be great if I no longer struggled with sin, but I will the rest of my life. Justification, though, is a one-time event. It happens at the moment of salvation. It is distinct from what we call sanctification. Sanctification is that growing in Christ that will take all of your life. Okay, And you should be able to look back if you were like me, I became a believer at 15. I should be a little bit more godly. I should be a little bit more holy. I should be a lot more holy Okay, than I was at 16, a year after I became a believer. I should know more of the word. I should be feasting on it and growing in it. Okay, because when we reach the Lord, our justification will be evidenced by our sanctification. What did you do for the Lord? Not, not that that gets you to heaven, but it is an, like an offering to the Lord. This is what I did, these works of grace, to serve you for your glory and for your kingdom. Because once God accepts a sinner on the, on the basis of, and here's that other word, imputed righteousness, that person can never lose their right standing before the Lord. Why? Because God has done the saving. He will never change his mind. Now, let me define that word imputation in case you didn't use it in a sentence this week um, or ever in your life. Um, I'll define it this way, and I'm going to quote Michael Horton, who is a a theology professor at Westminster Seminary in California. He likened imputation to chocolate chips. You you know this is is the best illustration, okay? Because it has chocolate in it. He likened it to chocolate chips in the making of chocolate chip cookies. You set out all the ingredients to make chocolate chip cookies, but if you leave out the chocolate chips, then you don't have chocolate chip cookies. Okay, You have a nice cookie, but it is not a chocolate chip cookie. You've, left, you've got all the key ingredients except one, the same type of thing. If you leave out what we call imputation, you have everything else but the gospel. Well, I believe in Jesus. How does his righteousness become your righteousness? How does your sin become laid upon him? That's imputation. Okay? I'm a sinner. I need salvation. God is holy and just. Christ gave his life on the cross for my sin. You got all those, but if you don't have the fact that his righteousness comes to you, you don't have the gospel. You do not understand it yet. Imputation is an accounting term. comes counting um, from the Latin meaning to apply to one's account. So we have what's called double imputation. My sin goes to him. His righteousness comes to me. Okay? 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So first, my sin is laid upon him. 
And his shed blood atones for that sin. There, in perfect obedience, as he has given his life for us on the cross, his righteousness at the moment of faith is imputed, is laid upon me. Well, what righteousness did I have? I didn't have any. I needed all that Christ had. And you know what? He's got it. He's got it for me. He's got it for you and you and you and you. Now, how much sin do we have? Oh, we've got a lot of sin. Okay? My sin is great. God's grace is more than sufficient. More than sufficient. One theologian said two of the most beautiful words in the Bible are for us. For us. Jesus lived and died and rose again for us. All of his work was for us. Word number three, live. In the mid-1970s, some of you have probably read this, Francis Schaeffer wrote the book, How Shall We Then Live? How shall we then live? Why is this such an important question? Because the Christian life is not just about knowing the truth, it's about applying the truth, about applying it in practical ways. We have to grow in our knowledge of scriptures in order to see the meaning and how that knowledge that flows from scripture into our daily lives. We have to understand what the passage means before we can properly apply the truth that is there. Otherwise, we might misapply a text and end up handling snakes and drinking poison to show how godly we are and how much we trust God. That's a misapplication of Scripture. Okay? Living out the righteousness that comes from Christ involves knowledge of Scripture, and our first and primary application is that, of that is how we live with God a relationship with our Heavenly Father. The more we love Him, the more we become like Him. That doesn't mean we become God, but G.K. Beale said, we become like what we worship. We don't become God, but our lives demonstrate a Christ-like activity. That's the practical application. That's how we live it out. So, we know God better, then what do we do next? We serve man better. We serve our neighbor. We care about them. The more we love him, the more we will love one another. If you don't have a love for your neighbor, you better go back on your knees and say, how much do I love God? How much do I love God? R.C. Sproul wrote, the goal of the Christian life is not spirituality. Now, I didn't like this quote until I got to the very end, okay? It's not spirituality. The goal of the Christian life is not piety. The goal of the Christian life is not morality. The goal of the Christian life is righteousness. Righteousness. We seek spiritual power, spiritual gifts, spiritual disciplines, not so that we can be spiritual, but so that we can be righteous. Morality can be practiced by anybody. Who, anybody. They don't have to believe in God. They can be a moral person. Piety can be practiced just in terms of rote religious activities. But righteousness, righteousness flows from here, a changed heart into the way we relate to God and the way to relate to one another. How do we live? We live in righteousness. Brings us to number four, faith. 
Faith is the continuing act of the Christian. Now, faith is a one-time event that you believe, but then it continues because then you have to live it, as we just saw, in each and every day. It's, and faith is not simply knowledge of the Word. There are a lot of people out there who have a lot of knowledge of Scripture, okay? I mean, I had some seminary professors back in Pittsburgh who had a lot of knowledge of Scripture, but frankly, I don't think they had much faith, okay? The study of doctrine, of faith, does not mean that in my retirement I will know all there is about Scripture. That's not faith. Okay? Our passage does not say that the just shall regularly talk about faith, make it their constant theme of conversation. The believer will talk about their faith. You, and if you don't, you bring it back on your knees and, and have a talk with the Lord. Okay? You will regularly talk about your faith. Habakkuk and Paul are saying they will more than just talk about it. The righteous will practice and live out their faith every day. Charles Spurgeon said, All the actions of his life will be conspicuously ruled by his confidence in God. Even the lowliest and the commonest of affairs in which he takes part shall be subdued and elevated by the dignity of his trust and fidelity of his adherence. He shall live by faith. The smallest thing in life will suddenly become very important as you live it out according to your faith in Christ. It says the believer lives only by faith because every other type of living for the believer is empty and it is void. Would you go back to your previous days before faith? Would you go back and live that life again? The blessings the Lord bestows, family, abilities, or joys, are only there to be understood as provided by the Lord for his purposes in our lives. Struggles, sorrows, hardships of life only make sense when our faith is in Christ. If God is not sovereign over those things, then we live in a world that is chaos, and there's no meaning to those sorrows. But if Christ sits on the throne and God is sovereign, then he has a purpose for those. The righteous live by faith in every moment of their life. The big things, the small things. Nothing is too small for the Lord to care about. You think, oh, no, I don't need to pray about that. The Lord's got other things to do. Take it to him in prayer. I lost, you know, I can't find my car keys. What do you do? I tore the house apart. Well, did you pray about it first? Well, no, I mean, the Lord's got other things. Pray about it. Oh, my child's got a splinter. What should you do? Well, you're going to remove it, but you might ask to pray about it, okay? Because you never know what that's going to be. Just as an aside, Abby Lee, my daughter, has an EpiPen, had something with nuts in it unexpectedly, went to shoot it into her leg, got caught on something, it went through her thumb, and the needle went all the way through her bone, like that. So she still has a splinter, which is a metal needle in her bone, and the doctors are all going, well, I don't know what to do with it. What do you think we should do with it? Okay? We're going to pray about it first. Okay? Then we're going to see what to do. The small things. The big things. This is a big thing. I need to take it to the Lord. He wants the small things too. Don't think that any burden you carry is not significant enough to put it before the Lord. The righteous shall live by faith in all affairs of life. Big issues, 
that need the direct intervention. Lord, come yourself, okay? This is what it's needed. It, this is the, I don't see how else it's going to be resolved. You've got to come. As well as those little things. I've got a splinter in my thumb, Lord. I need your help. Whether your circumstances are ordinary or whether they are extraordinary, you live by faith because there is no other, no better way to live than that. The just shall live by faith. So the question for today is, do you have faith in Jesus Christ? Okay, not just knowledge, because you may have a lot of knowledge. You may have sat in church a long time and say, yeah, I've heard that. Yeah, Rand, I know that Reformation stuff. That's good. But do you believe it? Has your life been changed? Have you gone from an enemy of God to a child of God? Have you received the grace, the saving grace of Jesus Christ by faith? Have you said to him, Lord, I cannot do this on my own. I put myself before you, and I pray that you would come into my heart and change me forever. That's the prayer to pray. Let's go. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you today, and and we want to live by faith, but we want to know faith. We want to be able to say, Christ has taken my sin. And he has given me his righteousness. And because of that, I can now come to you, Heavenly Father. I now know that all my concerns can be taken right to the throne of grace. I now know that I no longer fear eternity. I no longer have to attempt to make myself right with you. Christ has done that work. And he has called me by name and said, today is the day of your salvation and you will believe. He has done this because of his great love for us. We don't understand a love like that. We don't see it in this world. But yet there it is on the pages of the word that you have given to us that we might understand that no one is beyond the reach of God's grace. And that when you call us, when you grab hold of us, it's forever. And you will never let us go. Lord, for those who may have only known you before they came in here, and now it is a day of their faith, that their hearts would be enlivened. For those of us who have known this and and, and our faith has been in Christ and, and we understand this, that we would take a giant step forward and be reminded of this, that we should never live in fear, that you have a plan worked out for our lives and it is to your glory that we go and live that life and obey you no matter what the world says. Come upon us today, Lord, that we would understand these things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our faith is not in a system. It's not in uh, a doctrine. Our faith is...